0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Credit, a podcast where I discuss the week's biggest TV news headlines, recap and analyze some of my favorite shows, and let you know what you should be watching. So we have breaking news. I'm recording this on Friday, and it was just released. The first headline um, that I want to get into was just released, a crew member of The Connors, the spin slash sequel to Roseanne that has been airing on ABC the past few years, a crew member has died on set in what sounds like a, a medical emergency, maybe a heart attack or something, but a member of the crew died in the middle of production. Uh, very sad, shocking, crazy story. Um, Wishing all the best to the people over at the Connors and that crew member's family. The second news headline a little lighter, Paris Hilton might be coming back to our TV sets or laptops or phones or tablets or however you watch TV. She recently, this week, signed a deal with Warner Brothers Unscripted to form her own production company and to develop and potentially star in new reality television for the company. So what that means is, um, in the next few years, we may be getting a new Simple Life, a new World According to Paris, a new My BFF of Paris, more that's hot. We might be getting more of Paris on our screens in the next couple of years, which do we need this i don't I don't know. I feel like we kind of all just collectively decided to forget about paris Hilton and now she's here she is rearing her head again, ready to get back into the spotlight so again w b will be producing these unscripted series. Um, I believe the deal is for at least two years and could potentially be extended. Um, Since it's Warner Brothers Unscripted, there's a good chance those shows will go to HBO Max, although they could end up anywhere. You know, they could be sold elsewhere. So keep an eye out if you're interested. And are you really? For new Paris Hilton content. Finally, the biggest headline of the week that I'm sure we've all heard about is... um, the talk on CBS going on an extended hiatus this week while they figure out what the hell to do with a little problem they have named Sharon Osborne. So, some background. Last week on the podcast, I discussed the Megan and Harry interview and Pierce Morgan and the fallout, and when you know he quote unquote decided to quit his job, you know, got fired. And uh Sharon Osborne is friends with Pierce Morgan and I guess on maybe last Wednesday, the Wednesday before, a couple weeks ago, something like that. During their their version of Hot Topics, um, she mentioned a defense of Pierce Morgan, saying that she did not think anything he said was racist, and that she that he should be forgiven and did nothing wrong. And I don't know if this happened on air or during a commercial break. I'm not really clear on it, and I don't watch the talk, and I can't be bothered to even look up this one clip. If she said on air or off that she felt like she was going to be put into an electric chair and called a racist for defending someone that other people thought were racist. Which, like, oh God, such a Karen thing to say, right? So this all spiraled into a shit show, <laughs> So basically this Sharon then went on entertainment tonight and gave this like crazy interview where she said that she was being set up and it was a betrayal because they weren't supposed to ask this question and then they asked it on air. So she was surprised by it and all the hosts had made a pact that they weren't going to do that over some segment in February about why white people can't say the N word, which like not the same thing, bitch. And, Her black co-host, Cheryl Underwood, went on her podcast and basically said, you know, Sharon's blowing this way out of proportion. She had a hissy fit. She was lobbing F-bombs left and right after this whole incident. And then after that, Yashar Ali broke a story on his, I don't know if it's his blog or on Twitter maybe, that he then talked to a bunch of co-hosts, ex-co-hosts of the talk Namely, Holly Robinson-Pete and Leah Remini, who confirmed that Sharon Osbourne is a racist asshole. (laughs) So Holly Robinson-Pete, after this whole thing went down, tweeted that Sharon Osbourne basically got her fired from the talk like a decade ago. That she only lasted a year or so on the show and she didn't get her contract renewed because Sharon Osbourne told the producers that Holly Robinson-Pete who by the way is like a Hallmark movie star right now, was quote, too ghetto for the show. So Holly tweets this, Sharon Osbourne says, this is not true, I don't use that vocabulary. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, she's having her lawyer send Holly Robinson, Pete a cease and desist, delete the tweet or you're getting sued. It has not been delete, good for you lady. And then this new footage, well old footage surfaces of Sharon saying the word ghetto on the talk. Sharon said, I don't use that word except to refer to the places where Nazis put Jews. But then a clip surfaces of her calling Leah Remini ghetto because of the way that she talks. Like, make up your mind, bitch. So then Leah Remini also goes on the record with Yashar, and says, Holly Robinson-Pete used to call Julie Chen, who's Chinese-American, when she was upset with her, used to call her wonton and slanty eyes. Whoa. And the fact that this news came, like, right on the heels of that hate crime in Atlanta against the Asian women who own the spa, the spas, like, holy fucked up, Batman. Then we find out that not only did she call Holly Robinson-Pete to ghetto, she also called Sarah Gilbert from Roseanne, who is an out-and-proud lesbian, used to call her fish eater and pussy licker. You are disgusting, Ms. Osborne. And again, all of this information is coming from a co-host, Leah Remini, a person who has shit to lose by going public. Like, attaching her name to this. Not anonymous sources. It is Leah Remini. <laughs> then, this also resurfaced this old issue that Sharon Osborne had way back in 2003, where she held this charity event, and like, I guess instead of, like, it was a game night or something, like a casino thing, and instead of winning money or prizes, you won points, and then the person at the end of the night who had the most points got this diamond necklace that she had donated. So the woman who won that, like, raffle thing, her name is Renee Tab, and she's Iranian-American. She's a talent agent. And she herself was not on Sharon's guest list. She was invited as a plus one for someone who was invited by Jack Osborne, Sharon's son. So Sharon had no idea who this woman was, released a statement, a press release, accusing Renee of stealing this necklace way back in 2003, like trying to ruin this woman's life and career. There's all this shit out there about how Renee like got personal phone calls from Sharon Osbourne, trying to ruin her saying return it or I'll bring you down, calling her a Persian carpet cunt. Like you can't say racial shit like that ever, especially I'm sorry in the 21st century you stupid ass bitch. And now for you to have the nerve to go all over television to be on entertainment tonight and on Twitter and like being profiled in the LA Times talking about how you're being set up. No bitch, you're being taken down. And all I have to say is about time. Like I'm sorry. 2003, you were doing shit like this with Renee Tab, and you want to say that it's a setup because it, this happened because this whole like um, Piers Morgan thing happened eight minutes before 11 o'clock last week. No, you clearly have been like this for a very long time, and we're just now at a point where people aren't going to freaking take it anymore. So hopefully, potentially, we have seen the last of Sharon Osbourne. Couldn't have come soon enough. Stay tuned for the recaps. This Thursday was the season two finale of RuPaul's Drag Race UK on WoW Presents Plus and BBC Three in the UK. And I'm not mad, but I'm not happy either. Um, if you watch the show, I'm sure you are in the same boat Let's just talk about the episode. So we we have our final four. We have Ellie Diamond, Tace, Bimini BamBoula,sh and Lawrence Cheney, all of whom come into this finale offering different things. Uh, Lawrence Chaney, for sure, early frontrunner. Bimini Bamboulash coming up from behind after the COVID break with the most wins on the show. Tace is the lip-sync assassin, which honestly just means you've been in the bottom a whole bunch of times. So not too much to brag about, but still. And then Ellie Diamond, the safe queen, the young queen, the queen who has something to prove. So they all come in with different storylines. And honestly, we we knew that the only people who had a chance to win this season were Bimini or Lawrence. Like, I highly doubt that Rue is going to give Tace a win after she literally was in the bottom four out of nine episodes. She, Unless Ellie Diamond came in and clear as day won this final challenge, blew everyone else out of the water, she wasn't going to win either. She, you can't win RuPaul's Drag Race without winning a challenge. Um, so we knew it was going to be. Bimini or Lawrence. Lawrence started really strong. She won two of the first four episodes before the COVID break. So that's significant for a couple reasons. One is because when they came back from the COVID break, she was the only queen who came back with wins under her belt. The other two queens who won were either eliminated, Estina Mandela, or were not allowed to return because they had COVID, which is what happened to Veronica Green. So. As of episode five, when they came back, Lawrence was the only queen with a win under her belt, and she won the episode they came back on, which was a group challenge, and also Tace and Bimini won as well. But still. So as of coming back, Lawrence Cheney had three wins: clear momentum, clear front runner. But then she started to stumble. And I think part of the reason she started to stumble is because Bimini really started to shine. So this COVID break was super interesting because it, it demonstrated the growth of some queens and also the regression of others. So like with Bimini, for example, we could see how much she spent her break working. She came back a totally different queen. Like that first episode, I thought Bimini should have gone home. I could not stand her in the first episode. Her runway was terrible. I didn't think she did very well in the lip sync. Uh, I mean, Joe Black didn't do very well either, which is why Bimini stayed. But still, like I thought Bimini should have been eliminated in episode one. But then we come back from the break and she wins two episodes in a row. One for one of the best Snatch Games in years on any franchise as Katie Price. Who I have no idea who Katie Price is, but... Bimini's performance was so pitch perfect that I knew who she was without knowing who she is. You know what I mean. And at the same time, we start to see queens like Tace, who had one bottom placement before the break, come back and have three bottom placements after the break. And it just it and then Lawrence, we can see starting to get into her own head. The better Bimini starts doing, the worse Lawrence starts doing. And it's kind of like on Coven where like one Supreme, there's only one Supreme, so the other must fade away for a new one to rise or whatever the hell happened on American Horror Story. But that like Bimini seemed to be like sucking Lawrence's powers away and Bimini ended the season with four badges. Lawrence with three. Ace with one, although, again, it was that group shared one, and she had four bottom placements, so, like, not a great track record. And Ellie with none. Now, this was annoying in the last half of the season, was how much these queens focused on these stupid badges and, like, the fake meaning they ascribed to them. Like, they would pick on Ellie so much and make fun of her and mock her and, like, use the badges against her. Like, in one episode, Lawrence was upset with Ellie and basically threw it in her face. Well, well, you fucked me over. Trying to get a badge. And you didn't get a badge. So was it worth it? Like, they became so mean toward Ellie that I was kind of rooting for her. Like, Lawrence just did not have a good second half of the season. And Bimini had a stellar second half of the season. So I think taken as a whole, it really was anybody's game if we think of beginning to end. But, you know, the freshest episodes in our mind, Bimini fucking killed them. Like, in most cases, was the clear frontrunner in every episode. The clear winner in every episode. Like, I mean, in in Snatch Game, I don't think there was anyone else. Like, I don't even remember who else would have been in the top. Like, I think she was the only one who did a good job, in my opinion. Like, I think taste was also up there in the top, maybe. Um, but I don't remember anything taste did. So, like, honestly... Bimini was the only good one in the Snatch Game. They did a stand-up challenge. Bimini was the only good one in the stand-up challenge. So, I mean, to see Bimini get to the end with all this momentum behind her, it was expected that she would win. And honestly, the fan base is behind her, including me. I didn't like her until we came back from break, and I thought she should win. I loved her post-COVID break. And Lawrence, again, like she got in her own head and under her own skin and started and became like kind of whiny and mean. And I know it was pressure and she's not like an asshole, but I don't know. She just became less funny and fun to watch. So I think it became one of those things where the entire fandom and everyone watching just assumed Bimini would win, you know, like taste is not going to get the win After being in the bottom four times, Ellie's not going to get the win after not winning a single challenge. So it was a Bimini Lawrence horse race. And then watching this final episode, it was such a bizarre episode because the the way the episode was actually made, like constructed, edited, all that stuff was bad. Like when the challenge was to write lyrics to a RuPaul song, as it usually is, and then perform it. And when they did the performance, the sound mixing was so off for most of the verses. So for Ellie's verse and Bimini's verse, they were rapping so fast, but the backtrack was so loud that you literally could not hear them or understand a word they were saying, which should have been a clue that neither of them were going to win. And it got a little better for Tace and Lawrence. I think for Lawrence in particular, it sounded better because she was speaking or rapping a lot slower So it was easier to understand. Um, So that was strange. And then Lawrence kept fucking up the choreography and you could see them trying to hide it in the editing. But like there were some group shots they showed where you could see that she was just behind the beat. Um, And then the top four end up becoming a top three and Ellie gets eliminated, which like I understand Ellie's not going to win the crown, like I just said. But why eliminate her at the very end of the episodes that she has no shot and is not top three when I thought she did really decently in the challenge and looked great on the runway? Like, it just didn't make sense, especially to put Tace in the top three when we also know because she was in the bottom four times, she's not going to win. Like, Tace should have been in the top. For the challenge because she was the best in that final challenge of writing the verse and performing. She was far and away the best. Um, But then just have everyone lip sync. Just have all four lip sync. Because then it just became like, okay, what is the point of taste even doing this? Like she deserves it because she did well. But then we know she's not going to win because of her track record. So what what is the charade? I don't understand. It was, it was so strange. And then watching the lip sync, honestly, I don't think any of them did a very good job to this particular song. I think it was a great song thematically for the challenge or for the episode. It was I'm Still Standing by Elton John. But I don't think it was a good song overall. I don't think any of them, like I said, did it particularly well. I thought it tasted fine. Um, I thought Lawrence did fine. I actually thought Bimini did the worst in this just because, like, her usual tricks were not suited to it. Um, And then we end up at the crowning, and the winner is announced as Lawrence Chaney. Which, like I said at the top of the show, of this recap, I am not mad about that. Lawrence did great. Through most of the season, she was super entertaining for a lot of the season. In the confessional interviews, was fun to watch. Had some good looks on the runway, some bad looks on the runway. Um, not an undeserving winner, but a disappointing one, given how well Bimini did at the end of the season after the COVID break, and the and and just the growth that Bimini showed was antithetical to what Lawrence showed, where she started strong and then faded, that usually you reward the queen that comes up, you know? You don't reward the queen that has, you know, been steady throughout or that started strong and fell off. And I don't know, it just, it didn't sit super well with me or a lot of people. I, I would never send hate to Lawrence. I think she's great. I look forward to seeing what she's going to do. Like I said, I think she's really entertaining. Um, I just think that for this particular season, she was not the best choice for the winner. And it actually, you know, honestly, it doesn't matter. It's not even so much like on, on U.S. Drag Race, you know, the winner gets $100,000. That can change a person's career and really propel them and allow them to grow or um, expand a platform. You know, there, Bob the Drag Queen is has famously said that when she won her $100,000, she invested the whole thing in a stand-up special, which then got picked up by Logo and then picked up on Amazon Prime and led to tours. And, you know, Bob is now one of the most successful, well-known queens from U.S. Drag Race. So that money can really change things. I think Trixie Mattel put her All-Stars 3 winnings into her cosmetics company. So the money is the big thing with... Drag Race US. In the UK, they don't win money because they're on DBC, which is publicly funded, so they can't do commercial sponsorships. But, and we, as we learned from season one on UK, you know, it really doesn't matter. That top three, Bag of Chips, The Vivian, and Davina DeCampo, they're all doing amazing things. Davina DeCampo was just announced as playing Mary Sunshine in the UK tour of Chicago, once that gets back up. You know, she's released albums. Um, bag of chips and the vivian have hosted shows together on netflix they have um a podcast together you know it this the uk really does not it the winner doesn't particularly matter just like the winners of the challenge don't matter because all you get is a badge the winners of the season i i don't think particularly matter you know bimini is going to be very famous and do amazing things I think Ellie will do great things. Even She wasn't even top three. I think Tace will be, she was such an entertaining presence in her talking head confessionals that I think she'll be big and will have lots of opportunities. So none of them are going to want for anything. It's just that when we look at the winners of the series, this one's going to be like, a Oh, Lawrence, yeah. Oh, but Bimini, you know? Is anybody watching the new HBO Max show, Generation? Because I'm watching it and I hate it. (laughs) You may have seen it on your app if you have HBO Max. It's stylized with the T as a plus sign. Uh, Three episodes came out last week or the week before. Two episodes this past week. Two episodes this week and an episode next week, I think, is the schedule. And it's like a half hour dramedy, I guess. Sometimes it's a comedy, sometimes it's a drama, most of the time it's just terrible, and the only reason anyone is even really talking about it, I think, is because one of the two creators is a 19-year-old girl named Zelda Barnes, and... She supposedly, like, created all of these characters in the story based on her own personal high school experience. And, like, she's going to an Ivy League school, but she took a gap year to produce and write the show with her dad, who, by the way, is a filmmaker and, like, directed some actual movies, like that Vanessa Hudgens movie, Beastly. So it's not like she's not some privileged asshole. But regardless, it follows all of these ridiculous teenagers at, I think, an Orange County high school. It seems like a conservative area, but also, like, not really. So there's no real story. The only through line that we get is this absurd storyline of one of the characters giving birth in a mall bathroom at Christmas. Because she didn't know she was pregnant and she calls her friend, who calls another friend, and like we get some really, I'm not gonna lie, some actual funny images from these, from these parts of the story, which start every episode. And like we get an image of one of the girls running for the mall, carrying an inflatable kiddie pool and then getting stopped by mall security and like lecturing him on his wokeness level. And so, and it's, it's stupid, but like actually kind of funny. And when it's going for that absurdist angle, it's not the worst show ever. But my God, when it follows these characters like two to three months earlier we're at, is the point we're at right now, it's just, insufferable sometimes and i don't know why i'm continuing to watch it i think it's like a train wreck situation where i want to know how this pregnancy storyline resolves so i'm watching the rest of it so that i can like hate watch it in a way but we get all these different characters who are like all dealing with their own sexuality issues and issues with their parents and all kinds of friendship issues and shit like that and I don't know. It's supposed to... It's the stupidest, like, high school-level philosophical conversation on this show. And it's such a ham-fistedly written show. It's so heavy-handed. It is not subtle in any way. I'll get to it. So we meet a bunch of these characters. Like, Chester is... A queer black kid who is played by Justice Smith from Detective Pikachu, if anybody saw that movie, who looks like he's in his 40s. He does not look like he's a teenager at all. And he plays, again, this black queer kid named Chester who keeps getting dress coded at school for, like, wearing crop tops and painting pussy power on his nails and, like, generally being over the top and he keeps doing it instead of conforming to like make a statement. And he gets sent to the guidance counselor in the first episode who is a new guy who is also a black queer man. So then Chester's entire story is like, I'm flirting with my guidance counselor. I'm purposefully getting dress coded so that I can flirt with my guidance counselor. He tries to follow the counselor on Insta and he won't accept his, his requests. Like literally over the first four episodes, that is Chester's story. He tries to follow his guidance counselor, who he has a crush on and wants to fuck on Instagram, and the guidance counselor won't accept the follow request. What? Come on now. And then there's twins, Naomi and Nathan. Nathan is coming to terms with his sexuality, where he's finally admitting to himself his bisexuality and trying to come out to his parents, which he eventually does in episode three, and then deals with the fallout in episode four. Um, Naomi has a boyfriend who... Her brother Nathan hooks up with because the boyfriend is closeted and like, guys, when I talk about how cringeworthy this show is, the scenes, the, the this first episode, the whole series, but the first episode lays the groundwork for this whole series of trying to be surprising or shocking or to make the audience go, what the fuck, rather than telling a story. I feel like that's their goal is to make it go, ugh, what? Instead of actually, like, giving their characters, you know, characterization. So in the first episode, we're introduced to Nathan when he's laying in bed jacking off to gay porn and then eating his cum. Oh, I should have prefaced this by saying I know it's marked explicit, but, like, I'm getting real explicit because this show gets real explicit. Like, what the... uh, I... (sighs) Like, I get that teenagers probably do that, but why the fuck are you showing it to us in the first scene we were seeing of this person? Oh my god! So we, then, like, we see dick pics on his phone, and later in the episode, he hooks up with the with her his sister's boyfriend, and before he can even get the dick in his mouth, the guy comes in his eye, and he has pink eye in the second episode from it. From like an irritant, it is. Oh my god! I was watching through my fingers. It is so cringy and then naomi finds out and she's a whiny little bitch and oh my god there's another character one of the only characters who's not the worst is this girl named Greta, who is living with her trans aunt i believe not sister aunt yes sister no the mom sister her trans aunt um because her mom got deported and the mom does not approve of the of the trans sister, but the trans sister is like raising the, the Greta and her brother. So I mean, like she's the only, and she is also coming to terms with her sexuality and has a crush on another one of the girls, Riley, who I think is the one. I'm pretty sure. I I have a hard time telling these kids apart because we see so little of their faces, because all they do is have their heads in their phones, because this is a very, what the hell generation is this, Z, Gen Z? This is a very Gen Z show, where like we're constantly looking at people's screens, and we have to deduce who they're talking to by trying to read the tiny little script at the top of the text message to see what the contact name is, and we're looking at dick pics, and we're watching them text each other, and like we're watching their hands more than we're watching their faces. So forgive me, I have a hard time telling them apart. Anyway, I believe Riley is the one who is pregnant and giving birth in the bathroom. And Greta has a crush on her. We don't really know a lot about Riley yet. Um, There's, oh my god, the fucking worst character on the whole show is this girl named Ariana, who is a young black girl who has two gay dads. One is played by J. August Richards from Angel, who recently came out of the closet himself last year when he was playing a gay character on Council of Dads. And his husband is, what is his name, Um, from... The one who had the speech impediment on Big Bang Theory, what is his name? John Ross Bowie. And he was on Speechless. And they play a couple, and they're raising Ariana. And Ariana is a little asshole who thinks that because she has gay dads, she can go around saying fag and being homophobic and a complete douchebag. And the actress playing her is probably also the worst actor on the show, even though the acting almost across the board is pretty suspect, except for the parents. Again, J. August Richards, John Ross Bowie, Martha Plimpton plays Naomi and Nathan's mom. Um, Sam Trammell from True Blood plays their dad. The parents are good, they're pros, but the teenagers are woof. Another story altogether. Um, but Ariana is like hooking up with Nathan, but then there's a story of like people thinking that Nathan is only using her to prove that he's not gay, that he's just bi. It is, there's, it is exhausting to try to keep up with these people, especially considering the episodes are a half an hour long and there's like a dozen cast members or so. And because there's no story, there's too much to keep track of. Like, it's just that Naomi and Nathan are fighting. And then when they get over one thing, they're fighting about something else. And like, I just finished episode four, and it ends with Naomi getting pissed off at Nathan for something. And I'm still not entirely sure what it is. Like, is she just pissed off because he started making out with Ariana? Like, why are you mad at that? And I get that teenagers are, you know, unruly and not exactly always thinking clearly. But like, Oh my God, I just, and the writing, y'all, the writing is, okay, I wrote down a couple of examples from episode four. So at the beginning of the episode, Chester, we watch him get ready to a Britney Spears song. Like what 19 year old writing the show was like, Chester, this 16-year-old kid should be getting dressed in the morning to Lucky by Britney Spears from her 2001 album, Oops, I Did It Again, which, for those of you keeping track at home, was released probably five years before this character was born. Yes. Anyway, stupid. So he like paints his nails to say pussy power, and he shows them to the principal, goes to the guidance counselor, yada, yada. But he is listening to some podcast about like the extinction of dinosaurs. And he has this conversation with a stoner kid about how, and they're like, oh, I love that podcast. You know, like the atmosphere just exploded one day and all the dinosaurs went extinct in a second, but all the bugs and the stuff living under the surface and underground survived. And Chester's like, so what? We're just supposed to hide underground to try to survive? I'm like, oh, that's not metaphorical at all. Ugh. And then later in the episode, uh, Megan, who is Nathan and Naomi's mother, politically Martha Plimpton, rushes inside after going on, like, a thinly veiled homophobic rant about how her son couldn't possibly like men. A wine bottle breaks and she rushes inside and, like, falls to the ground. And when her husband comes in, she just says, it's broken. And he goes, don't worry, it's just a bottle of red. And she collapses to the ground and starts crying. Again, not metaphorical at all. It's just such a stupid fucking show with stupid fucking people. And I don't, again, I don't know why I'm watching this. Are you watching this? Is anybody else watching this? Like the critics fucking loved it. I think that's why I started it in the first place is because it got some really great reviews from like some trustworthy sources. But then if you check Twitter or the Google reviews, no one likes this show it's gross. It goes for shock value over depth. It has absolutely no redeeming characters. It doesn't know what it wants to be. It has tonal issues. Like, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it something in between? That's okay. As long as you strike a balance, but it will literally be like absurd scene of a pregnancy in a mall bathroom title generation to like Nathan crying about his sexuality and not being accepted—like it's just—it is so wild, and it is so wildly bad at times. I—I don't—I don't even really know what else to say. I—I I encourage everyone to watch that first episode, if only to be like, "How the actual fuck does stuff like this get made? Like, how does a show like this get put on HBO? I mean, I guess it's on HBO Max, so it's not really HBO." But how does this end up on a network like HBO, which is giving us some of the best television around year after year after year. And then we get this thing that reads like something a college freshman wrote drunk with a roommate in between bong hits for an intro to screenwriting class. It's garbage. It's garbage. This week's premieres include the return of Hoarders on A&E, the return of Return to Amish on TLC, the second season of Breeders on FX, and the full season of Genius, the Aretha Franklin series from Nat Geo, will drop on Hulu, all of that on Monday. On Thursday, HBO Max is releasing a new baking show called Bakedopia. Uh, Peacock has a true crime documentary series, John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise, and the premiere of For Real, the story of reality TV hosted by Andy Cohen on E! On Friday, Amazon drops the first three episodes of its adult animated series, Invincible, the second season of Hulu's Solar Opposites premieres, we get the first episode of the new Mighty Ducks television series on Disney+, Plus, which I am very excited for, and the fifth season of Nailed It on Netflix. And then on Sunday, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist returns from its hiatus on A New Night in Time, the second season of City on a Hill comes to Showtime, and The Rookie on ABC also returns. From its winter hiatus. In terms of finales, we have Basketball Wives ending over on VH1 to tell the truth on ABC. Superman and Lois is actually going on a long break. They had a case of COVID or multiple cases of COVID, I'm not sure which, on production as they are making these episodes. So they're a little behind and need the time to catch up in editing and posts and all that. So they are taking an extended hiatus and Supergirl will return next week uh, in that slot. Superstore has its very last episode ever. Its series finale airs on Thursday. Call Me Cat ends on Thursday as well. Into the Dark, Hulu's holiday themed movie series ends its second season with blood moon on friday and then on sunday fox's new game show Cherries wild finishes out its run so my recommendation for the week is a stupid as hell little cartoon that i discovered by accident this past week so i mentioned in the first episode my recommendation was resident alien on sci-fi which just got renewed for a second season so hooray for that and I was watching it on Wednesday night, and they were showing a commercial on Sci-Fi for a new animation block that they have, and one of the cartoons uh, stars Alan Tudyk, who was on Resident Alien. So they were pumping that, and then also they said the premiere tonight of The Pole, and it's they showed Santa doing cocaine and a bunch of elves. I was like, what the hell is this? This sounds fun. So just because, you know, it's 1115 on a Wednesday night and like, what the hell else am I doing? I waited it out to watch the show. I love Christmas. I love adult cartoons. I love raunchy humor. I'm a, after all, a 12 year old boy at heart. So I'm watching it and it's dumb. It's so dumb. It's so raunchy. It's Santa Claus saying fuck. It's great. So basically it's Santa Claus, um, sends out a dick pic (laughs) to the elf he's having an affair with. And his son, Blackjack, who is in next in line to take over as the 21st Santa Claus does not want to do the job, but also it does not approve of the way his dad is doing the job. So he leaks his dad's Nick pic as they call it, which again, so dumb, but funny. And it becomes a scandal in the North pole. And, again so stupid it's like a 12 or 13 minute cartoon you can watch it like on your lunch break or on the toilet like it's so short but it's so silly and fun and the cast is great like santa claus is bobby moynihan colin jost plays a penguin news reporter nicole byer is the head elf sashir zameda is the elf that he's having the affair with um Who else is on it? Uh, Jillian Bell is Mrs. Claus, who goes by Gretchen. It's just a really fun, short little thing, especially for people like me who love subversive crap and who love Christmas and could use a little bit of that silly Christmas joy even when it's, you know, sexualized and has Santa smoking dope and doing cocaine with a snowman. So that's my recommendation. The poll on Sci-Fi. You can watch the first episode online on Sci-Fi's website. It's on YouTube. It airs at eleven fifteen p.m. on Wednesday nights. Give it, give it a shot. I mean, what can you lose? It's, it's literally like fifteen minutes, including commercials. So probably twelve minutes of your life. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Fake TV Critic. I'll see you back here next week with more recaps, more analysis, and more recommendations. Have a good week, everyone.